This is ASIN, the Association for the Study of Ethnicity and Nationalism. To find out more, visit asin.ac.uk.
And the more sustained discussions have tended to be normative rather than empirical. Now, it might be suggested that the lack of sustained comparison is not surprising since language and religion are simply not comparable. Now, I don't want to get sidetracked here by a discussion of the meaning, of comparison, or the conditions of comparability. So my interests are substantive, not methodological. One can certainly construe religion and language in such a way that they are not comparable. So if you were to define religion in terms of beliefs and rituals, for example, there would be little leverage for comparison. But you can also construe language and religion in a way that makes comparison both possible and fruitful. My strategy for doing so is to begin by aligning language and religion provisionally with ethnicity and nation, and by sketching five ways in which language and religion are both similar to and intertwined with ethnicity and nation. I'll then identify a few key differences between language and religion and draw out their implications for the politics of difference. I obviously can't undertake a full comparative analysis here, but I hope that the friction of comparison produced by reading one domain of cultural practice against another can suggest some potentially fruitful lines of analysis. So let me begin by aligning language and religion with ethnicity and nationalism. To begin with, both language and religion are domains of categorically differentiated cultural practice that simultaneously unite and divide. In popular understandings, both language and religion sort into distinct, bounded, and largely self-reproducing communities. And in this respect, they are both analogous to ethnic groups and nations and variously intertwined with them. Secondly, language and religion are basic sources and forms of social, cultural, and political identification. They are ways of identifying oneself and others, of construing sameness and difference, and of naming fundamental social groups. And language and religion are, again, in this respect, analogous to ethnicity and nationalism and pervasively intertwined language, religion, and both together are generally understood as central to or even constitutive of most ethnic and national identifications, and they frequently serve as the key diacritical markers, emblems, or symbols of such identifications. Third, and again, like ethnic and national identifications, language and religion are generally transmitted in the family. Indeed, language and religion are ordinarily more central to primary socialization in the family than are ethnic and national identifications. And they are therefore often deeply taken for granted and embodied identifications, and both are routinely represented as primordial. Yet fourth, neither religion nor language is in fact primordial or fixed. As we know from the burgeoning constructivist literature, the same holds for ethnicity and nation. Like ethnicity, Nationhood, religion, and language are powerfully shaped by political, economic, and cultural processes, and they change as circumstances change. From an individual point of view, as Bennett Anderson said of nations, both religions and languages are joinable in time. And in the contemporary world, both are increasingly chosen rather than given. Finally, most or many of the claims made in the name of religious or linguistic are similar to, and again intertwined with, claims made in the name of ethnic groups and nations. These include claims for economic resources, symbolic recognition, equal representation, cultural reproduction, or political autonomy. Such claims making is a part of a more encompassing process of the politicization of culture and the culturalization of politics. 
Now, in all these respects, ethnic language and religion are both similar to ethnicity and nationalism and similarly intertwined with them. This has led scholars of ethnicity to treat language and religion implicitly or explicitly as functionally equivalent. Indeed, ethnicity was constituted as an object of study precisely by abstracting from the specificities of language and religion, along with other descriptive markers such as phenotype, region of origin, and customary mode of livelihood. The call to abstract from cultural content was given its strongest formulation by Frederick Barth, who argued that the study of ethnicity should focus on the nature and dynamics of ethnic boundaries, not on what he somewhat dismissively called the cultural stuff these boundaries enclose. This perspective on ethnicity has been immensely fruitful and has been important for my own work. But it's also inevitably flat, since it neglects by design the specific cultural practices, understandings, and institutions that are implicated in the construction and working of ethnic identities and boundaries. So today, following the lead of scholars such as Stephen Cornell and Richard Jenkins, I want to return the cultural stuff, specifically language and cult language and religion, to the center of analytical attention. I want to do this in a way that's sensitive both to the similarities between language and religion, including those that I've sketched above, and to the implications of their differences for the political accommodation of cultural heterogeneity. <coughs> and before proceeding further, I want to underscore that language is a much more definite and less elusive analytical object than religion. For all their complexity, linguistic phenomena have a definiteness, boundedness, and regularity that religious phenomena lack. We know what we're talking about when we talk about language, but the same cannot be said for religion. I don't want to get into definitional thickets here, so I won't attempt the definition of my own, but to keep the discussion somewhat manageable, I'll limit my attention primarily to what we call organized religion, and within that field, primarily to the Abrahamic religions. And I will also focus my attention primarily on liberal politics, contemporary liberal politics. Perhaps the most immediately striking difference between language and religion is that language is a universal and pervasive medium of social life, while religion is not. If one defines religion broadly enough, of course, then religion too can be seen as a universal social phenomenon, but it's not universal in the same way. Language is a pervasive, inescapable medium of social interaction. Religion is not. Moreover, language is a necessary medium of public as well as private life. It's an inescapable medium of public discourse, government, administration, law, courts, education, media, public signage, and however one defines religion, it can't be said to be an inescapable medium or necessary ground of action in any of these domains. Public life can, in principle, be a religious, but it can't be a linguistic. The modern state is characterized by direct rule, intensive interaction with citizens, universal public education, and a public sector with a large number of jobs. As a result, the rules and practices that govern the language of public life directly affect the material and ideal interests of people with different language repertoires. Language is therefore chronically and pervasively politicized in linguistically heterogeneous modern societies. Religion is also politicized, but it's politicized in different ways and for different reasons. The state must privilege a particular language or set of languages, but it need not privilege a particular religion, at least not in the same way and not to the same degree. Yes, 
easily identify pervasive traces of Christianity in the public life of Western liberal democracies, even in those with the strongest traditions of separation of church and state, or laicite. One need think many of such taken for granted frameworks as the reckoning of dates according to the Christian calendar, the organization of holidays, or the privileging of Sunday as a day of rest. Yet, even if complete neutrality is a myth, contemporary liberal polities, even those who still have some kind of established church, have made substantial, though contested, moves in the direction of a neutral stance towards different religions. And such moves have no counterpart in the domain of language. The state can approach neutrality with respect to religion, even if such neutrality can never be fully realized in practice, but it can't even approach neutrality with respect to language. According to secularization theory, moreover, modernity has entailed the progressive privatization and hence the depoliticization of religion. Events of the last three decades have made it easy to criticize secularization theory, but as many leading sociologists of religion have suggested, secularization theory is more complex and interesting and robust than critics suggest, and it can't simply be dismissed out of hand. For many in the modern world, religion has indeed become a more individual, subjective, and private experience. And to the extent that this is the case, religion indeed becomes depoliticized, and religious pluralism can flourish in the private realm without generating conflicts in the public sphere. Over the course of the last several centuries, in the West at least, religion has indeed become much less central to public life and less politically contentious, while language has become much more central and more contentious. Yet while secularization theory captures an important long-term trend, there's a powerful medium-term counter-trend towards what Casanova has called deprivatization and therefore the repoliticization of religion. That is, if you take a time scale of decades rather than centuries, conflicts of religion have intensified, while conflicts of language, as I will argue later, have eased. As a result, while religion is not necessarily chronically and pervasively politicized the way language is, the challenges posed by religious pluralism tend today to be more complex and difficult than those posed by linguistic pluralism. I want to develop this argument in three stages. First, I'll argue that religious pluralism tends to be more robust than linguistic pluralism, at least in liberal politics. Second, I'll argue that religious pluralism entails deeper and more divisive forms of diversity than does linguistic pluralism. So let me begin with the greater robustness of religious pluralism. This results from the differing ways in which religious and linguistic pluralism are generated, reproduced, and institutionalized. I want to consider each of these in turn, starting with the generation of pluralism, and then moving on to talk about the reproduction and the institutionalization of pluralism. Conquest, colonization, and today especially migration generate religious and linguistic pluralism in similar ways by importing it from the outside. But religious pluralism is also generated from the inside. I'm not concerned here with relatively rare cases of religious splits and foundings, though historically these have been important internal sources of religious pluralism. I'm concerned rather with routine individual level changes in religious affiliation and identity. Individuals, of course, routinely change their linguistic uh, as well repertoires as well as their religious affiliations, but they do so in different ways and different consequences. For adults, at least, language 
to transform it. But when they convert from one religion to another, or from one form of religious engagement to another, this can involve a basic transformation of identity. People do not ordinarily add a new religion to a repertory of religions, notwithstanding the flourishing of various forms of hybridity and syncretism, nor do they ordinarily convert this word from one language to another. For children of immigrants, to be sure, language change is often substantive rather than additive, but this generally reduces heterogeneity, while religious conversion often increases it. Conversion can, of course, also reduce heterogeneity, and some immigrant groups to the U.S., Taiwanese, for example, exhibit high rates of conversion to Christianity. But pressures and incentives for conversion to the prevailing religion are on the whole relatively weak in contemporary liberal societies, while incentives to learn the prevailing language are strong. New religious movements, organized proselytism, transnational religious networks, an open religious marketplace, and a general climate of spiritual experimentation all promote religious pluralization, but there are no analogous forces generating linguistic pluralization from within. So religious conversion, broadly understood, is an important source of politically significant cultural heterogeneity, while individual level language change is not. In contemporary liberal societies, new forms and degrees of linguistic pluralism are almost exclusively imported through immigration, while new forms and degrees of religious pluralism are both imported and uh, endogenously generated through conversion. The second reason for the greater robustness of religious than linguistic pluralism is that religious pluralism is more easily reproduced. And here I want to shift my perspective from intragenerational to intergenerational change in reproduction. In pre-modern societies, Linguistic pluralism was more or less self-reproducing. Linguistic socialization occurred in families and local communities, and it did not require any specialized apparatus. Political authorities made no effort to impose linguistic heterogeneity, though they often did impose religious homogeneity. In contemporary liberal societies, the situation is reversed. It's now religious pluralism that is more or less self-reproducing. Religious socialization occurs in families and local religious communities, and political authorities, again, in liberal polities, make no effort to impose religious homogeneity. But linguistic reproduction now requires what Gellner called exo-socialization. That is, it requires prolonged and expensive schooling on a scale that ordinarily only the state is in a position to provide. So the state is much more central to linguistic than to religious reproduction. Children can, of course, acquire basic competence in a minority language from their parents and extended families, and this can be reinforced by minority language media, other minority language institutions. But without comprehensive schooling in that language, and I mean schooling with that language as the medium of instruction, not simply the object of instruction, it's difficult for the minority language to be fully reproduced intergenerationally. Some countries with Long-established, territorially concentrated linguistic minorities do provide, of course, comprehensive minority language schooling, but even this is not sufficient to ensure full reproduction. Minority language populations, for example, are shrinking even where such schooling is available, as it is for the Swedish minority in Finland or the Hungarian minority in Romania. And this happens as some children opt out of minority language school systems and as intermarriage often leads to intergenerational. Assimilation. 
comprehensive minority language schooling, a linguistic regime that constrains people's choices may be necessary to ensure the reproduction of minority languages. So an example would be the Quebec policy that restricts who can send English, who can attend English language schools, and notably requires almost all new immigrants to attend Francophone schools. This, again, underscores the role of the state uh, in linguistic reproduction. Now, this argument might seem to be blatantly contradicted by sharp increases in linguistic pluralism in the U.S. and other countries of immigration, which do not provide comprehensive minority language schooling or other strong forms of state support for immigrant languages. Immigration does, of course, increase linguistic heterogeneity, and the effect is intensified when immigrants cluster in metropolitan areas that sustain dense networks of mother tongue institutions. But this speaks to the generation of pluralism, not to its reproduction. <coughs> Continuing large-scale immigration masks substantial intergenerational linguistic assimilation. The Fishman model of language shift among second and third generation immigrants, set forth a half century ago, remains largely valid. Thickening transnational ties, weakening assimilation's pressures, and the growth of substantial foreign language media markets have no doubt slowed down the process, at least for certain groups. And as Richard Alba and others have shown, this is notably the case in the US for descendants of Spanish-speaking immigrants. But even in this group, a majority of the third generation speak only English at home. So Samuel Huntington's alarmist scenario of ethno-national conflict in the American Southwest based on a deepening language divide has no basis in fact. So the reproduction of minority languages in contemporary liberal states requires a massive and ordinarily state-provided educational apparatus, and it may also require a territorial regime that limits language choice. Such arrangements are in place in some historically multilingual states as a legacy of earlier nationalist struggles over the language of public life. Examples include Canada, Belgium, Spain, Switzerland, and India. But no such arrangements protect minority languages generated by recent immigration. The various forms of de facto limited bilingualism that have emerged in the US are significant as pragmatic ways of accommodating linguistic pluralism, but they neither aim at nor are they capable of reproducing that pluralism intergenerationally. The religious pluralism generated by immigration is more easily reproduced. Of course, it's not automatically reproduced. The religious landscape of contemporary liberal societies is fluid, especially in the US, and I've just noted the importance of conversion. But the intergenerational transmission of minority religions requires no state apparatus, like a minority language school system, and it requires no particular legal regime beyond the commitment to religious freedom that is a constitutive element of liberal politics. The transmission of religion, moreover, is not particularly costly. The transmission of a language beyond what's simply picked up in the home requires a major effort and carries a substantial opportunity cost, but the transmission of religious affiliation or identification does not. Now, what is transmitted, to be sure, may be little more than a nominal religious affiliation or identification, but this nominal identity can later be revived or reconstructed. Many second and third generation Muslim immigrants in Western countries, for example, are more pious than their parents or grandparents, or have constructed a new form of Muslim religiosity. And the same has been true of many American immigrant groups. The 
the intergenerational staying power of religion results in significant part from the ways in which religious practices can be flexibly adapted to changing circumstances. And this has no real analog in the domain of language. So the religious pluralism generated by immigration is more likely to be intergenerationally persistent than the linguistic pluralism so generated. Admittedly, one should distinguish between nominal and substantive religious pluralism. In the US, immigration has sharply increased the nominal pluralism of an already extremely pluralistic religious landscape, but at the same time, immigrant religions have become Americanized, notably by adopting prevailing congregational forms of religious organization and worship. Still, among descendants of immigrants, religion offers a more enduring locus for cultural pluralism than does language. There's nothing in the domain of religion analogous to the characteristic pattern of language shift for second and third generation immigrants. So while linguistic competences and identifications generally erode over time and are often only vestigial by the third generation, religious practices and identifications can persist and may even grow stronger for some. The final reason for the greater robustness of religious than linguistic pluralism is that religious pluralism is institutionalized and legitimated as an enduring presence in liberal societies in ways that linguistic Pluralism is not. Both ideologically and institutionally, as Zoberg and Long observed, contemporary liberal states tend to be pluralist with respect to religion and monist or assimilationist with respect to language. Their stance towards religion is an attenuated pluralism, to be sure. A more far-reaching pluralism is found in some empires and post-colonial polities where, for example, different systems of personal law may govern members of different religious communities. But as Zolberg and Long put it, this kind of more robust legal pluralism is incompatible with the structural character of modern nation states. Still, even this attenuated pluralism toward religion represents a sharp reversal of the historical pattern in the Christian world in which states were strongly monist with respect to religion and pluralist with respect to language, or more precisely, as Gellner pointed out, simply indifferent to linguistic diversity. Ideologically and normatively, the clearest expression of this difference in the stance of contemporary liberal states toward religion and language is that immigrants are not expected to adopt the prevailing religion, but are expected to learn the prevailing language, or one of the prevailing languages. The liberal state is expected, that is, to be neutral with respect to religion, even if it is never fully neutral in practice, but there's no such expectation of neutrality with respect to language. Language tests for citizenship are routine, but a religious test would be unthinkable in a liberal polity. Enduring religious pluralism is not simply normatively accepted in liberal states, but institutionally supported. To be sure, as I noted a moment ago, some historically multilingual states provide strong institutional support for linguistic pluralism. But this strongly pluralist stance nowhere applies to immigrants. I don't mean to suggest that liberal states generally adopt harshly or even actively assimilationist stances toward immigrant languages, although there has been a shift in the last decade back towards a more assimilationist stance. The point I want to underscore here is the sharp distinction, both normative and institutional, between endogenous and important linguistic pluralism. That is, international minority rights regimes mandate expensive, sorry, expansive protections for long-established minority languages, but only minimal protection for 
states that provide elaborate institutional support for historically established minority languages provide nothing remotely comparable for immigrant languages. Liberal countries of immigration do, of course, accommodate the liberal linguistic pluralism generated by immigration in various ways. They may provide signage, information, voting materials, or bureaucratic forms in minority languages. They may provide translators in medical, legal, or administrative settings, or they may provide various limited forms of bilingual education. But these pragmatic accommodations are categorically distinct from comprehensive parallel school systems or regimes of territorial autonomy that seek to facilitate the long-term reproduction and preservation of multiple languages within a single state. So there's a sharp distinction between endogenous and important linguistic pluralism. But there's no sharp distinction between endogenous and important religious pluralism. I want to underscore this point, so let me restate it in a different form. Rights and protections for long-established minority languages are nowhere extended to immigrant languages. Linguistic settlements, in other words, are not expandable to include immigrant-carried languages. But religious settlements are expandable. Not easily, not automatically, but expandable nonetheless. So many of the rights and freedom, rights and recognitions enjoyed by long-established religions have been extended to immigrant religions. Liberal states have differing historically conditioned modes of accommodating religious pluralism, but whatever their established mode of accommodation, they face non-trivial pressures to accommodate immigrant religions on similar terms. And these pressures have no counterpart in the domain of language. The most salient contemporary instance, of course, concerns the accommodation of Islam in Northern and Western Europe. It's impossible, of course, to do justice to this vexed and complex issue here. But consider just a few examples. Accommodation on similar terms would mean providing or permitting Islamic education in public schools in countries in which religious instruction in public schools is the norm. It would mean subsidizing private Islamic schools in countries in which, in which such subsidies are provided to other private religious schools. Or it would mean granting one or more Muslim organizations the status of public law corporation in Germany, where that legal status is the cornerstone of Germany's distinctive system of church-state relations. Now, the last of these three has yet to happen, but there are many examples, uh, though not uncontested ones, of the first two. Measures taken to accommodate Islam in these and other ways have, of course, been controversial. And there are spectacular counterexamples, such as the Swiss referendum banning construction of minarets, or the present campaign to bar U.S. courts from taking account of Sharia. Yet even apart from these high-level reversals, many Muslims claim with considerable justice that the measures taken have not even yet come close to realizing fully equal treatment. Yet if one looks beyond cases of high mediatized contestation, one can, I think, see a steady movement towards accommodation in a variety of domains over the last two decades. This has been driven by the courts, on the one hand, and by a statist and securitarian concern to manage and supervise Muslim populations on the other. So to sum up this part of the argument, normative expectations, institutional frameworks, and individual incentives converge in fostering a deeper and more robust religious than linguistic pluralism in liberal societies. Not simply immigration, but a variety of other factors as well make for increasing, persistent, and institutionalized religious pluralism. Immigration generates at least as much linguistic as religious 
robustly generated, reproduced, and institutionalized a linguistic pluralism, I want to move on to argue that the accommodation of religious pluralism in liberal polities is also more likely to generate difficult and sometimes intractable problems of what has been called deep diversity. Now, this is obviously not true for all forms of religious pluralism. Insofar as religious pluralism involves individualized, subjectivized, or otherwise privatized forms of religious experience, it is easily accommodated in liberal polities. And much of the recent pluralization of the religious landscape in liberal societies, as I suggested earlier, has indeed uh, involved the proliferation of new forms of individualized religiosity and spirituality that do conform to the expectations of secularization theory about the long-term privatization and depoliticization of religion. But as I suggested earlier, recent decades have also witnessed a significant counter-trend towards the deprivatization and repoliticization of religion. And I'm concerned here with public, organized, and collective forms of religious, religious life, not with private, individualized forms. Much of the discussion of public or political religion has focused on Islam. Privatized and individualized forms of religiosity are in fact more common among Muslims, especially those living in the West, than essentialist accounts of Islam as an intrinsically public and political religion would suggest, but these have been overshadowed by the centrality of various forms of public or political Islam to political contestation in both Muslim-majority and Muslim-minority settings. Public religion is, of course, not unique to Islam. Strong forms of public religion can be found in Christian, Jewish, Hindu, and Buddhist traditions, among others. Yet the claims of public Islam pose a particularly difficult challenge to liberal states. But I want to pitch my discussion at a more general level and to keep the focus on religion and language more generally. In the era of modern nationalism, language has been widely understood as the chief criterion and the main cultural substrate of nationhood. Territorially concentrated linguistic minorities have therefore been understood by ethno-political entrepreneurs on the one hand and central state elites on the other as potential nations. And linguistic pluralism has therefore been construed as a threat to the territorial integrity of the state. Even where secession or territorial autonomy has been implausible, language conflicts have been endemic. The expansion of state employment, the introduction of universal schooling and universal male military service, and the growing importance of what Gellner called context-free communication in an urban, mobile, literate society, all of these have made language a crucial form of cultural capital, a central focus of personal and collective identity, and the key terrain of political struggle. Yet I want to argue that language conflict has lost some of its intensity and transformative potential in recent decades. The vast reorganization of political space along national and for the most part broadly linguistic lines throughout Europe and Eurasia has reduced, though of course not eliminated, the scope for new language-based nationalist claims. And the same can be said for the equally massive internal reorganization of political space along nationalist lines in India. Older language-based nationalist and ethno-political conflicts, of course, remain alive, but with some exceptions, they have become less urgent and less destabilizing. Federalism and territorial devolution have allowed autonomous but not sovereign polities like Quebec, Catalonia, the Basque Country, or Wales to pursue their own 
reorganization of political space along broadly linguistic lines has made numerous polities more linguistically homogeneous, at least if one brackets the effects of immigration, and the heterogeneity that remains is widely seen as more legitimate and less threatening. In the geopolitically relaxed zones of northern and western Europe, the Americas and Australia and New Zealand, states no longer seek to impose the tight coupling of culture, language, territory, and population that was central to nationalizing projects of a century ago. Linguistic diversity is not only tolerated, but in some cases even celebrated. Or even in East Central Europe, which was historically the classical site of nationalist language politics, conflicts and politics. Even here, the eastward expansion of the European Union and the institutionalization of minority language rights have taken the edge off of some formerly intractable ethno-linguistic conflicts. In the US, conflicts under the status of Spanish flare up periodically, focused, for example, on bilingual education or the symbolic question of an official language. But more striking is the continuing piecemeal, pragmatic, largely uncontested accommodation of Spanish and other languages in a variety of less visible settings. Now, language, of course, does continue to be a terrain of chronic struggle in multilingual polities worldwide, especially where minorities are territorially concentrated. But in liberal polities, those struggles have, again, with some exceptions, become less intense and attractive. Yet while language conflicts have eased somewhat in religious decades, conflicts over religion have intensified, driven by the resurgence of public religion. As a universal and inescapable medium of public life, language can never be fully privatized or depoliticized. Religion could, in principle, be fully privatized or depoliticized, but to the extent that it is not privatized or depoliticized, then the conflicts arising from religious pluralism tend to be deeper and more intractable than those arising from linguistic pluralism. The reasons for this are found in the most elementary differences between language and religion. Language is a medium of communication. It's not a structure of authority, and it has no intrinsic normative content. Uh, defenders of the sacred wharf hypothesis, that is the idea that language constitutes thought, culture, and worldviews, might argue with this characterization. But the stronger versions of Warfianism, I think, have long been discredited. So this would be an argument only at the margins. Whatever normative content languages might carry is certainly quite thin. But religion, and especially public religion, often involves an authoritative, binding, and comprehensive set of norms. These norms do not simply regulate private behavior. They reach into the public realm, addressing such matters as gender, sexuality, education, social policy, the economy, and even international affairs and war. Some religious norms directly and comprehensively regulate particular areas of life, as Jewish and Islamic norms do for marriage, divorce, and inheritance. Other norms are more general, but have potentially far-reaching implications for various domains of public life. The claims of public religion to provide binding and authoritative norms for the regulation of public and private life challenge the state's claim to monopolize the regulation of public life and to authoritatively regulate certain areas of private life as well. They also create conflicts with competing forms of public religion and with those segments of the public, including those who profess the same religion, who reject the claims of public religion. <coughs> These are often deep mountains of principle 
involving fundamental differences of worldview. And this is what I mean by deep diversity. Language conflicts do not involve such conflicts of principle or worldview. As Gellner put it in another context, they are conflicts between people who speak the same language, even when they do not speak the same language. Liberal states are committed to a far-reaching accommodation of religious pluralism, but this commitment can generate quandaries. Liberal states may be obliged to accommodate forms of religion that promote illiberal ideas or practices, or they may be obliged to act illiberally in restricting religious or other freedoms in the name of other values. Consider a few examples from the domain of education. Should the state exempt Christian children from exposure to secular humanist views in school, as some fundamentalist Christian parents in Tennessee requested? Should it exempt Muslim children from co-educational physical education classes, as some Muslim parents in some European countries have requested? Should it allow teachers or students to wear religious clothing? Should it provide public financing for conservative religious schools that cultivate ways of life that may be seen as at odds with the state's interest in fostering the development of autonomous individuals and responsible citizens? Or consider the question that was brought into focus by the Rushdie Affair and revived by the Danish Cartoon Affair some years later. Namely, should the state restrict potentially hurtful or offensive speech or expression so as to protect the sensibilities of members of religious communities? No comparable quantities arise in the domain of language. So let me conclude. Language and religion have seldom been studied together in a sustained way. To specialists in either subject, language and religion have seemed too different. While to students of ethnicity, they have seemed too similar. I have argued that language and religion are similar enough to make comparison possible, yet different enough to make it interesting. As fundamental domains of cultural difference, language and religion have much in common. Both are ways of identifying oneself and others. Both are ways of construing sameness and difference. In Bourdieuian language, both are basic principles of vision and division of the social world. Both divide the world in popular understandings into distinct, bounded, and self-reproducing communities. And claims are made in the name of both for recognition, resources, and reproduction. These and other similarities have led students of ethnicity to treat language and religion as functionally equivalent and as theoretically uninteresting forms of cultural stuff, significant primarily as grist for the mill of ethnic classification and boundary formation. But this perspective is flattening. It neglects important differences in the social organization and political expression of language and religion. Language is an inescapable medium of public as well as private life. Religion is not. The state must privilege a particular language or set of languages, but it need not privilege a particular religion. Language is chronically and pervasively politicized in the modern world, while much of religion has become privatized and depoliticized. Yet deprivatization is an important countertrend, and the claims of public religion to authoritatively regulate public and private life have no counterpart in the domain of language. Immigration generates new forms and degrees of both linguistic and religious pluralism, but the religious pluralism generated by immigration is more intergenerationally robust and more deeply institutionalized than the linguistic pluralism. The upshot, and I conclude with this point, is that religion has tended to displace language as the cutting edge of contestation over the political accommodation of cultural difference.